Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day that you blessed us with. Thank you, Father, for your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness for us, Lord. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us grace. You give us heaven. You give us salvation. You give us forgiveness of sins. You give us a family, Lord, of brothers and sisters who love one another and can encourage each other and speak truth into each other's lives, Lord. We thank you that through the blood of Christ, Lord, you've torn down that wall that separated us and you've brought us together to be unified as a family. So we thank you, Lord, that we can meet together, that we can worship you, that we can cast our cares and our anxieties and our burdens on you because you care for us, because you love us, Lord. And so we just give you our hearts this morning. We pray that you would encourage us, strengthen our faith in you, unify us, exhort us, rebuke us, correct us, edify us, Lord, through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit in us, and help us to go out into this world to be salt and light, to get the good news out, Lord. Help us to be your hands and feet, whatever that looks like, Lord, uh, through, through you, Lord. And so we love you. We praise you. Bless this time together. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's message is Put on the New Self. Put on the New Self. I remember a story that I once heard, and at least this is how I remember it in my mind, of there was this young man and his parents, um, they were having the hardest time with him. He hated doing chores. His room was always a mess. Um, He'd sit on the couch playing video games all day. He had his hair grown out. He was overweight. He was just very lackadaisical, careless, didn't want to do anything. And his parents said, that's, that's it. It's enough. On your 18th birthday, and they all got together, and he agreed, you're going to join the Marines. And he said, okay. And they were desperate. They were hopeful. They're, they're like, we don't know if he can even make it past the first week of boot camp but he's going and that's it and so he agreed and to their surprise he graduated boot camp and he came home and he, he came home for the weekend and they didn't recognize him hair was trimmed up he was slim had some muscles he came into the house he started going right to work doing things he wouldn't sit down he was doing dishes his room was immaculate for the weekend he cleaned his room he you know, he was folding his clothes and doing all that and doing his own laundry and so forth, mowing the lawn and all these things. And the parents are like, who is this person? He's a new man, right? The discipline and the training and the teaching of, of the military and all of what he went through during that boot camp created a new person. And perhaps thousands and many, many stories like that could be told of you know, young men and women now who are serving in the military in different ways, who maybe had that careless kind of lifestyle without purpose, without discipline, and now they're a new person on the other side of things. I often say how I love the similarities between and the analogies between the military and the Christian life. There's so many of them. Christianity is not a lackadaisical, careless, casual endeavor. It's an active faith. It's alive. It's with purpose. There's a pursuit. There's a goal. There's a striving. There's an eagerness that accompanies the Christian life. There's directives. There's orders. There's commands that have been passed down to us. There's a team. There's a family. 
There should be a camaraderie. All these things are similarly equated to the military. There's, there's enemies that must be conquered and so on and so forth. You think of a soldier on the battlefield, they're not fighting to earn a position in the military, right? They're fighting because they have a position already. And the same could be said about the Christian walk, the Christian journey. We fight the fight against sin. We fight the fight of faith. We fight these battles not to earn a position in Christ, but we do it because we already know him. It's evidence. It's fruit of a new identity in Christ. Non-believers don't fight the good fight of faith for Jesus Christ. Non-believers don't fight against the flesh to please God, to please Jesus. Those are evidences of someone who knows Jesus Christ. And I remind myself regularly as, we, as I compare the analogy of the military to the Christian life of I don't want to allow someone to have more discipline than me. I don't want them to have more discipline, more commitment, more honor, more dedication to their cause than to the Christian life. To me, that's how our mentality should be in our Christian walks. That someone in, a, in the business sector, someone who's a firefighter, something I pursued for a while, police officer, military, they go after it. They go hard. They, they want to promote many of them. They want to succeed. They're, they're very active and they're very eager for these things. How much more as Christians should we have discipline? Should we be eager? Should we be zealous for the faith? The spiritual outweighs the earthly. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He also says this verse, which many of you know, watch your life and your doctrine, persevere in these things, and by doing so, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. Watch your life closely, Timothy. Watch your doctrine closely. Discipline yourself, Timothy. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Don't get distracted, Timothy. Have a one-track mind. Have your eye on Christ on that track. Don't get distracted just as a soldier is focused on the mission at hand. And when you read First and Second Timothy, t- Timothy, you see all these commands that Paul gives Timothy. Guard the, through the Holy Spirit that which has been entrusted to you. Discipline your body, Timothy. He tells him, be diligent to compete like an athlete, to be strong in the grace of Christ. And then he goes on to say, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In this, in this week's text, it's a continuation of last week's Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. This week we're looking at Colossians 3, 5 through 11. And in these verses that we're looking at this week, Paul gives specific commands. Specific commands of what it means to live out the godly Christian life. Specific commands of what holiness looks like. Of what it means to be disciplined as a Christian. Last week it was set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
Keep seeking that which is above. Remember your life is with Christ. Look forward to his return where we will be glorified with him. Paul begins the text that we're looking at this week with that key word that we've seen before, therefore. So Paul's going to say, therefore, in light of eternity, in light of Jesus being at the right hand of the throne of God, in light of the fact that your life is hidden with Christ, you've died with him, you've risen with him, you're seated with him, in light of that, grasp those facts, and now he's going to give us specific practical commands on how to live it out in the Christian life. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. If you have an NASB, it says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Can you imagine a soldier in the barracks eating potato chips, watching TV as his fellow soldiers are on the front lines? They're battling. They're, they're in the heat of the war. They're struggling out there. Their lives are on the line and He's in a lazy boy chair, just sitting back, watching the football game, eating potato chips. The order is to fight, and he's sitting back, relaxing. How's it going to be when the general, when the supervisor, whoever it may be, finds out about this man sitting there with his feet up, relaxing? It's probably not going to be a good conversation, right? It's probably not going to go over well. When the order is to fight, you fight. When the order is to sit, there's a time to sit. There's a time to relax. The soldier eating bonbons in the barracks is like a Christian who's living in sin and thinks everything's okay. God's okay with this. I just, it's all about grace. I can just live however I want. It's all going to be okay. The soldier knows what's coming his way if he's doing that in the, the scenario I just brought up. Many Christians are taught you can do that in the Christian life. You don't need to obey the Lord. You read the commands. You read the warnings. Yeah, they're there, but you just kind of skim over those. It's all about grace through faith. Just, just believe you're saved. Go on with your life. The general's happy with you. Your master's okay. It's all about grace. Paul says no. Verse 6. Verse 6. It's for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Ephesians 5, 6 puts it this way. Don't let anyone deceive you. With, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, because of these sins, because of these vices. When you, every, almost every time you read a vice list 
in the New Testament, it's accompanied with the wrath of God. It's accompanied with judgment that will come. We don't want to dumb down the warnings of Scripture. We want to shout them from the rooftops. We want to we look at them clearly. We want to allow them to penetrate our hearts and our minds and to have the effect on us that God wants them to have. Not an overwhelming burden of guilt and shame and condemnation to where we're beat down and we, we read about lust or impurity or passions or greed or anger or whatever it is and we go, oh man, I've, I've, I've been struggling with that. I'm, I'm trying to fight but I'm struggling so now I'm going to leave church today and I'm going to feel condemned and beat up and burdened. No, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about seeing these things like a mirror and allowing God to show you and I areas in our life that we're not meeting up to Christ and then to say, I feel sorry about this. Scripture talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to read three verses pretty quickly here. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 11. As I was looking over my notes this morning, these three verses really stood out to me. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. And Paul, you know, he wants, he's shaking up the Corinthian church. They're living in sin. They're living in idolatry. They're going back to their past life. And Paul's essentially in 1 Corinthians really shaking them up, really coming down hard on them. And he does it again in 2 Corinthians. But he has at least a bit of good news here in this section. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Let's go ahead and read this. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. It's a good thing to have godly sorrow, to have godly remorse. It's a good thing that when you're reading the word or when a close brother or sister sees something in your life and they come and tell you, Hopefully they take the log out of their own eye first and then take the speck out of yours gently and they don't beat you up over it, but hey, brother, sister, you're I've seen this in your life. I've seen this or that, that it, you're, not, you're not living up to what you should be. You, you've gone off. We should take that and not push that aside, but say, Lord, I'm sorry. The, it, it should bring a remorse, a godly sorrow. It should break our heart. And Paul says, I rejoice. This is a good thing because this is what's happening to many of you in Corinth. You're having this sorrow and it's leading to a repentance which leads to eternal life. So it's so important as we read through the commands of scriptures, the do this, the don't do that, that we have that in the background. We should be asking the Lord, are any of these things in any way, shape, or form in my life? If so, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me to conquer these things and help me to move forward in holiness in you. I want to be more like Jesus. That's how Christians talk. So we're looking at two categories today, two simple categories that Paul lays out for us in verses 5 through 11. And here's the two, two categories. 
This is what you put on and this is what you put off. Put these things on and put these things aside. God makes it really clear for us. Gives us two categories. And I was thinking about even as Christmas is approaching and some of you might be going shopping. Some of you go to a, the mall or you go to a department store and you're trying on clothes and you're like, does this fit? Does this not fit? Does this look good? Does this not look good? Um, and you, we have the luxury in America, right, of going store to store and trying to see things that fit and don't fit and whether we want this or don't want this. And typically, you know, just typically, it's, th it's women who spend more time doing those things and hours at times maybe. And then you leave and you don't even find anything that you like. You're like, a couple hours later, I tried on 50 things. I don't like any of them. And typically, I would think that most men are just like, get me a large, you know, get me a medium when you're out and if it fits we're good and then it's on with the rest of our lives right and so that's got to be a struggle for you ladies I know going to the mall with Leah before I'll just grab a bench and like start reading or looking at something on my phone I'll just let me know when you're done you know hopefully it's soon but half hour hour later she's pretty good she'll find things she likes the Lord he makes it easy for us essentially he's saying spiritually these are things you're going to put on Okay, if you're a Christian, this is what you're putting on. Here's the list. And these are the things you put off. Don't wear this. This isn't a part of your spiritual wardrobe, and this is. He makes it easy. The part is just applying it in our lives. That's hard. We need the Holy Spirit for that. Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. He gives us the list, and we go, okay, Lord, I'm still struggling. Help me to do what you say here. So, he begins in verse 5 with the put-offs. This is, this is the put-off list. This is the list you don't want to wear in your Christian life. He lists immorality, porneia, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Put these things aside. Put these things off. But it's actually a little stronger than that, isn't it? He's not like, oh, guys, th these are some sins. They're, they're pretty bad. Just put them off, okay? Let's get to the put on. No, he says, put these things to death. If you have a King James, it says, mortify these things. Mortify the members which are upon the earth. Put to death, NASB, consider yourself dead to these things. Nekruo is the Greek word. It's cut off. Sever it. View it as a corpse without life. You don't conquer the enemy sitting back in the lazy boy chair watching TV. It's just, it's not going to cut it in the spiritual Christian walk. You don't conquer the flesh with passivity. As we talked about last week, you have to starve it. You have to sever it. You have to put it aside. You have to put on Christ, his joy, his love, his peace. And then the things of earth, as the song goes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to be so enamored in God, so enamored in Christ, so blown away by his glory, so blown away by his grace for you and what he's done for you and his love, that these things lose their pull on your life. I quoted Alexander McLaren the last couple weeks, and I found another quote by him that stood out to me. He's talking about the vivid picture of putting to death in verse 5, and he gives this illustration. It's an illustration of a man who's working at a machine shop and gets his hand caught 
between the rollers, caught in the belting. And it goes like this. He says, another minute and he will be flattened to a shapeless, bloody mass. It is not easy or pleasant. But right before he says that, he actually says he he gets his hand caught and then he he catches an axe lying by and then he hacks off his arm. He says it's not easy or pleasant, but it is the only alternative to a horrible death. This is a vivid picture. Guy gets his hand caught. He needs to cut off the hand or else his whole body is going to get sucked into the machine and he's going to be dead. Do you want to lose a hand or do you want to lose your life? You don't want to lose either, right? So the moral of the story is don't get caught up in sin. But if you have, cut off your hand. And some would say, man, these are vivid pictures. You know, why are they so grotesque? Because sin is grotesque, right? Sin is gross. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell with all your members. Just speaking like Jesus, right? Some people go, that's too radical. When I'm counseling men who are struggling with lust and things like that, bro, you might got to get rid of that computer. Maybe get rid of it for a couple weeks. Oh, but I, I work on this computer. I mean, how... That's too radical. Jesus said, chop off your hand, pluck out your eye. Take radical measures to kill sin in your life. One theologian said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Whenever you think, well, sin's not that bad, just remember what happened to Jesus because of our sin. Remember the bloodiness of the cross, the slaughtering of the Son of God for us because of our sin. There's vivid pictures throughout Scripture when it deals with sin, the consequences of sin, and what Christ went for us because of our sin. But we must remember Colossians 3.5 is meaningless apart from Colossians 3.1-4. We don't only want to fight the battle on that front. Some people are so caught up in, I got to flee from sin, I got to run from sin, I got to put sin to death, that you're constantly thinking about sin, 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 instead of Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which is set your minds on things above. Keep seeking the things above. Keep setting your mind on Jesus Christ. That's how you starve out the sin. That's how you practically put the sin to death in your life. You push it out with a greater joy, a greater passion, a greater treasure. So when the passions and the lusts and the impurities of this world are tempting you, you have a greater passion a greater desire for God, a greater treasure so that you will be filled, satisfied in him, your cups overflowing. There's no room for sin in your life. I love the I am statements. You know the I am statements of Jesus, this, at least seven if not more, but here's, here's three. John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 10, 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The word pasture there is a feeding ground or food. He'll find fulfillment. You'll have light in you when you trust in the Lord. You won't hunger. You won't thirst 
You'll be satisfied. Your soul that at times is weak and frail and empty will be filled with him the more you set your mind on him and look to him. That's why David said in Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This beautiful picture of how Christ satisfies. I'm by the water. I'm in the pasture. I'm at rest. I'm relaxing. My eyes are on my shepherd. He cares for me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. When you're at rest in Jesus, when you're secure in him, when you realize that nothing can happen in your life without him allowing it, and you're at peace in him, what sin is going to grab a hold of your heart and lead you astray? You have no want. You have no desires but him. Psalm 34.10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Sounds like Colossians 3.1. Keep seeking the things that are above. Those who seek him won't lack any good thing. Keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where our satisfaction needs to come from. Remember David slaying giants, slaying Goliath, slaying the enemy. I love the picture. He's dancing in the street. He's rejoicing. His wife is taunting him essentially. Look at you, you foolish man. He goes, I don't care. I'm celebrating to the Lord. He's my satisfaction. I'm filled up with him. I don't care what you think. If he's satisfied with me and I'm satisfied with him, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm going to dance to him. I'm going to sing to him. I'm going to rejoice. That's the mentality you need to have as a Christian. When God convicts you of something and you read his word and you see it there and you want to do it, but you're like, I don't know. I don't know what someone else is going to think about me or I don't know what the world's going to, who cares? That's a temptation for all of us. But we need to learn from those in the scripture who found victory through the Lord because they weren't ashamed. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, who, all who believe for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Many were ashamed of the gospel. You guys believe in a Jewish carpenter who got crucified and died the mo- one of the most humiliating deaths? That's what you're going around teaching? That's what you're living for? That's what you've given up your life for? For that? And it was, it was mocked. It was shamed. He goes, I'm not ashamed. And that's how we need to live as well. The more you taste and see that the Lord is good, the more you taste of him, his goodness, true joy, true love, true peace, the less the things of the world have a hold in your life. That's how you grind these idols to powder with the rock of Christ, the chief cornerstone. When you set your life on him, your soul will be satisfied. I u- so I used to fight the battles against the flesh mainly with verse 5. So caught up in trying to run from sin, as I mentioned, trying to kill sin, trying to battle against sin, not so much on Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I thought of it like showing, like a man showing up, I used to play a lot of sports, right? Showing up to baseball practice with football pads on. Football pads are good for football. 
Just, it would be silly, right? Guy walks up, wrong sport, man, over here. And some of us are fighting sin on the wrong front. We're fighting sin the wrong way. We're, we're only fighting it maybe with half the coin. We don't have the other side of the coin. We're, we're missing something, and we need to have both. We need to have Colossians 1 through 4 and 5 through 11 and even so on, as we'll talk about perhaps next week. We need to be like Jacob, and we need to say, Lord, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. I'm going to wrestle with you all night. I need a blessing. I, Lord, I, I just prayed for 10 minutes. I, I'm, I'm still feeling anxi- anxiety. I'm still feeling depression. I'm still feeling empty. Okay, I'm going after you more, Lord. I, I'm, I'm drawing near to you because your word says you will draw near to me. I'm looking at your promises, Lord, that talk about in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and I, I'm lacking joy, so, Lord, I'm going ke- to continue going to you. Keep seeking, keep finding, keep knocking until that door is open. Be persistent in your pleadings with the Lord and your prayers with the Lord, and you're going to the Lord like Jacob. We need to be like Asaph when he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart. You're my portion forever. You're lacking strength. You're having passions that are not of the Lord. Lord, I need you to be my passion, my desire, my strength. Psalm 42.1, we need to be like the psalmist there who says, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I'm going after you, Lord. I'm thirsty, Lord, and I don't want to be filled with things of this world. I know they won't satisfy, but they're so tempting, but I'm going to you. I want you to fill me. We need to be like John. Remember John, he's, he's always trying to get close to Jesus. Anytime you read the Gospel of John and the disciple whom Jesus loved, he just throws that in there. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He loved them all, but he just makes sure to say that. He reclined at Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. There he is, just trying to get as close as he can to Jesus. And I love Jesus. He's like, you know, maybe he wants some space. He, he is, he's about to go through the most difficult trial that anyone's ever gone through. Imagine that. You know, we go through little trials in comparison in life, and we get all uptight, we get all anxious, we get all worried, and there's Jesus about to go through it all, about to take on the sins of the world, the wrath of God, go to the cross, get beaten, and he's fellowshipping with the disciples. He's embracing John. He's washing their feet. He's teaching them. He's praying for them. Who's at the cross? There's John right there at the cross, gazing up at Jesus, trying to get close to Jesus still. Then Jesus dies, and he rises, and who's running to that tomb? Him and Peter have this foot race, and John says, I beat, I beat him there. You know, I got there first. He's trying to get there as fast as he could. He was a little timid, he says, but I didn't go in. I don't know if he saw spiders in there. I don't know. It was dark. So he goes, Peter went in first, but I, I did get there first. <laughs> and then after the resurrection, I think it was John there in the boat who said, that's Jesus. Peter didn't know at first. Peter's fishing away, maybe going back to the old life a little bit. What happened with Jesus? We're not quite sure. And there's John. Hey, that's Jesus on the shore. Peter gets out, swims in. Jesus restores Peter. Remember, Peter denied him three times. And then right after that, Peter 
and Jesus are talking, and it says in the text that John was following them. And Peter looked back and said, What about him, Lord? So it was as if they were walking by the Sea of Galilee, and there's John closely right behind. Can I, can I be in this inner circle? And I think of that in our Christian walks with the Lord. You want to get as close as you can to Jesus through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through coming to church, through being with other believers. You just want to know Christ. You want to be near him. You want to be satisfied to him. You're not fighting the fight against sin on the front of thinking about sin all the time. You're fighting the battle against sin by thinking about Christ all the time, his love for you and what he's done for you. When you look at 1 John 5.21, it almost seems like it comes out of nowhere. The whole letter is about love, loving God, loving one another, and then he ends with little children, guard yourself from idols. Just kind of almost out of nowhere. This will hinder your love for God. This will hinder your love for one another. This will wreck your life. Flee from idols. Guard yourself from idols, first and foremost, by getting close to Jesus and being in awe of him. So it's then and only then that we get to verse 5. Once you got your heart satisfied in Jesus, now it's time to start putting things to death. It's time to start cutting off hands and chopping off limbs and cutting out eyes and it's not literal even though one church father it's said that he chopped off his private parts because you know Jesus said cut yourself off and so he thought man I can't win sin so and it's some scholars go back and forth on it whether or not he really did some say yeah no he did he wanted to get rid of I don't think that's what Jesus is saying right he's just now going to have to cut off everything else you know if Jesus said pluck out your eye as he did say that not literally you have another eye with which you can lust you pluck out that eye you have a brain now which you can think thoughts you got to get rid of your brain you might as well get rid of your whole body right spiritual these are heavy spiritual warnings and commands right very serious stuff so verse 5 if you don't do verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3 verse 5 and following is legalism Many Christians or supposed Christians live that way. It's just a bunch of rules. I can't watch this thing that I want to watch. I can't go do this sin that I want to do. And I, so I'm not going to do it, not because I want to please the Lord and not because I love him and not because I'm satisfied in him, but it's just a checklist. And it, it becomes an outward works-based life, not an inward transformation that because you know Christ, you now want to please him. You now want to honor him. You want to hate what he hates. You look at the cross and you go, Lord, I'm so, you're just so sorry for what your sin has done to him. You don't want to do it anymore. That's where we want to get. So we have the put off in verse five and Paul continues the list in verse, verses eight and nine. He continues, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Once again, very specific. And then he, he devotes a whole section, verse 9, to lying. And some commentators are like, why didn't he just say not to lie in verse 8 with the other list? He could have just put lying in there. But then he says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Many commentators believe that lying was just so widespread in pagan culture. It was just so normalized, even though all the other sins were as well. But everyone lied that he 
just gave a little section there to lying in itself. Stop lying or do not lie to one another. I told Leah this week that I confess things to her from time to time, and she's usually very gracious towards me, but I said, you know, I think that when I get irritable, maybe I've mentioned this to you as well, I, I often excuse irritability. Well, I didn't, I woke up really early this morning and I didn't sleep well, so I'm irritable. I, I haven't eaten breakfast yet. I'm trying to do intermittent fasting. So once 10 or 11 rolls around, I start to get irritable, right? Or a kid screaming in my ear, which never happens in my house, once, but once a week. And then I go, I actually wear the earplugs. It helps. It, do, it tones it down just a little bit. You can still hear it. It's loud and clear, but the earplugs help. But I go, I'm irritable. And I, I've always just excused that, like as if irritability is not anger. And if irritability is okay because I didn't get sleep, because I'm hungry, because kids, I can, I can kind of allow the irritability, which I think is just another word for anger, to build, to fester, instead of, like all these other sins, all these other idols, man, I, I'm really quick to cut them off. Oh, Lord, I see this idol, I see this sin, I cut it off, I cut it off, I cut it off. I'm actively per pursuing getting rid of it. Irritability, I'm, I'm just festering it a little bit because I have a right. Problem is I don't have a right. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love is not irritable. That's the ESV. I have the NASB, so I never saw the word irritable there, see? So I excused it. Love is not, love is not ang easily angered. Love is not provoked. But 1 Corinthians 13.5, love is not irritable. And it's because I read an article this week that the author said he struggled with the sin of irritability. And I said, irritability is a sin? And so I did all this digging, and then I found 1 Corinthians 13.5, and I go, I think it's just anger, and I'm just excusing it, and I need to deal with it. We all have things we need to work on. That's mine with many others, and perhaps that's why I told the men we need to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. So that's what we're trying to do, 13 verses. We memorized Psalm 34. That was 20-something, I think. Or I said, okay, we'll, we'll bring it down one verse at a time. If you only get three verses, you get three verses. But, hey, it's all about love, and that's what Paul says here in Colossians 3.14. Beyond all these things, after he gives all these lists of things to put on, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Christ-like love. Scripture says loving your neighbor fulfills the law. The greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. When you're doing that, where does sin have its place for in your life? I want to spend just a minute looking at that last word there in verse 8 the last vice that he lists in verse 8 he says abusive speech in the NASB filthy language foul language shameful speaking vile conversation put that aside put that to death I was reading about a YouTuber one of the top YouTube channels in the world 111 million subscribers 29 billion views PewDiePie is his name. Never heard of him before looking this up. I'm like, what makes this guy so popular? How does he have 29 billion views? 
And people said, well, he jokes a lot, he yelps, he does goofy voices, he, he plays video games and he gives political commentary. One person said most of which isn't accurate or truthful or correct. And then one person says he doesn't stop yelling and using constant profanity. He has a video titled Raging and Swearing in Swedish for 18 minutes. So people just want to tune in and listen to this guy just rip it up and curse and yell and get angry. And this is what's bringing in the views. The, I mean, I think this, as far as my research goes, this is what made this YouTube channel one of the most popular YouTubes in America. A down-to-earth guy that can be funny and just cuss up a storm. That's feeding the flesh. That's feeding what people want to hear. Yeah, go after that political person. Yeah, laugh about that. Do some funny joke and just cuss. And Paul says that has no place in the Christian life. Put it aside from your mouth, verse 8. When you look at the book of Ephesians, there's about 78 verses in Ephesians that are similar to Colossians. 78 verses. Not exact, but very similar. Sister letters, Paul wrote both from jail, located in around the same region. And so Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for the edification of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome word can be translated rotten word, putrid word, bad word, unwholesome word. Sometimes we're like, is this word okay? Is this word not okay? Where's that line? This or that? Is it? Is it not? And for me personally, I'm like, if it's close to the line, I just don't do it. If I have to sit there and give more than three seconds to thinking about this, whether it's bad or not, I probably just shouldn't use it. That's me. You have to pray about it. Pray for wisdom. First Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were, the utterances of God. When you speak, make sure you're speaking as if God is speaking. Well, it should be that, right? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Scripture teaches Father, Son, and Holy Spirit make their abode in us. So when we speak, we want to speak God's word. We want to be edifying. We want to be building people up. We want to be encouraging. Ultimately, we want to speak truth. So we have to ask ourselves, are we building up or tearing down? Are we cursing or are we blessing? Are we giving grace to those who hear us? Two more verses from Ephesians 5, 4 and 5. I think my mom had these on the wall of our house. She would write verses on note cards and put them throughout the house. Even in the bathroom, I think. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that or do that, but... You're going in the bathroom quite often, showering or whatever, and you see verses on the wall, and before you know it, you just start memorizing them, whether you like it or not. Ephesians 5, 4, and 5, there must be no filthiness, silly talk, chorus justing, but rather a giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, no impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I think I still have it memorized for the most part, just from those looking at it as a child. But in that list, with impure persons, covetous persons, no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, but rather giving of thanks. I went through a 12-week fire academy. Probably mentioned that before. Actually, it was a really hard trial in our life. I moved away from Leah for three months after being married just 
a couple years, I think two years, she moved in with her parents and I moved a couple hours away to go through this fire academy. Had no money in my bank account and no job after I graduated. So it was really challenging. But I bring that up because it seemed as if it was a prerequisite to be to curse to get into the fire academy. It was like every other word from the guys next to me were curse words every day for 12 weeks. Silly talk. Everything Ephesians 5 says not to do, they were doing every day in my ear. Silly talk, coarse jesting, curse words, profanity. And then you go home at the end of the day and what's in your mind, right? I, I just, what I'm saying is I know the struggle. If this is your struggle, I know the struggle. Okay? I wasn't perfect in it. But God wants us to have his words in our hearts. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Admonishing one another, teaching one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. When psalms are filling your heart, when his words fill in your heart, when Christ is filling your heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. One of my prayers often is Psalm 19.14. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a very simple verse. I encourage you guys to memorize that one, that my words would be the words that are pleasing to God. So we went through the put off, put these to death, and then there's Colossians 3, 10, and 11 as I get ready to bring this to a close here. He tells us now put on. He says, you have put on the new self, Colossians 3.10, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greeks and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. This created a big problem in the early church that when the Jewish people that adhered to the law were very zealous for the things of the old covenant and then they came together with pagans who their whole life was just sleeping around, living for the world, cursing, lying. And now you bring these two people together and you bring the Scythian and the barbarian who could barely speak. He's called the barbarian because he just says bar, bar, bar and that's how they talk. So they're called barbarians. They weren't, they were illiterate. Bring all these people together in a room, young and old and in any other context of the world, what happens? Within five minutes, someone's fighting, someone's arguing with another, someone's jealous about this, angry about this, and it just dissolves quickly. You bring them all into a room in Jesus Christ, and there's unity there. There's love there. There's peace there. There's joy there, and that's what Paul is saying here. When you're in Christ, when you're part of the new creation, when you, since you have put on this new self, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, all one because Christ is at the head of the church. It's this beautiful picture of Christian unity. So, he talks about a renewing here. A putting on of the new self. Ephesians 4.24 says the same thing. You, it says here, you have put on the new self, and you are to put on the new self. Just as we died with Christ and we were crucified with Christ, Christ says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily. It's what we talked about last week, the already and the yet not yet. You already are a new creation in Christ. You already are saved in Christ, yet there's a sanctification process going on. There's a renewal that Paul talks about here that's going on in your life. 
It's renewal and knowledge. It's renewal into the image of Jesus Christ. Because Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were created perfect with a love relationship with God and that was marred by sin. And so now what God is doing is he's renewing us back to be in unity with him. To be created in his image as he meant it to be. God doesn't save people so that we'll continue living like the world. He saves people to conform them to Jesus Christ, to renew them, to be more like him. So lastly, as I close this out, perhaps you've heard of the show Extreme Makeover. I used to call it Extreme Home Makeover. I think it's Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Maybe you've heard of it. I used to get home from school and eat my bowl of cereal and watch this show and just watch how these old, dirty, sometimes trashed out houses were turned into this immaculate, renovated, really cool house. And, you know, I grew up in a smaller house, so it's still pretty nice. But I thought about writing them and giving them a sob story. Like, hey, I have three younger siblings in our house. You know, it's not that nice. Would you please come? And so I envisioned that I would do that. I never did. But I love as you watch the show and they're pulling out the old carpet and the, the dirty wallpaper and the, the leaky roof that they're patching up and there's dirty, there's weeds and dirt and it's just trashed up. And then little by little, all these people come in. And it's not an overnight process, but they're, they're working on the house and they're laying aside the old things. They're ripping things out. They're cutting things down. They're replacing things. They're putting new things in. And then they, they put some big banner in front of the house the day of the showing. And then they take it away. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh. And then they show the family crying and weeping. And, oh, this amazing house. And I just thought of that illustration of that's what God's doing in our lives. He's tearing out old things. He's, he's replacing things. He's ripping out things. It doesn't hurt the house, but it hurts us when that happens. When he starts weeding out things in your life and he starts doing a work in your heart, it can be painful. It can hurt. And the scripture says, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Speaks of, this is, my, this is light, momentary affliction that we're going through in comparison to the surpassing greatness of the glory the weight of the eternal glory that's far beyond all comparison. So we have to keep that in mind as we're fighting, as we're battling sin, as we're moving forward in the Lord. Amen.